forward to this day on the calendar for quite some time. Um, in fact, Carla first uh, had had sent an email months ago asking about coming and sharing, and I knew I wanted her to come and share, but I didn't know the timing. And uh, as we put the calendar together and the schedule together, and uh, we specifically went through uh, the series that we went through on women, I said, hey, how about let's, at the end of that, have her come and share and minister, not only from the Word, but her story. And uh, I know that as she shares today, you're going to be ministered to, you're going to be blessed by it, you're going to be encouraged that the Lord is going to do some some deep things in your hearts if you open yourself up to Him. And we met Carla back at uh, Trinity Bible College, seems like a lifetime ago, but um, we have known her uh, since then. And uh, again, I just want, I don't want to take time away from her. And so would you uh, welcome her as she comes to share this morning? Wow, what a sweet presence of the Holy Spirit here this morning. I, um, people have personalities, churches also have personalities, and as my kids and I have traveled sharing our story, we have you know, been to many churches, obviously, and I'm just here to tell you, there has not been one that has had this. So you guys have a, such a heart for worship here, a heart to heart of worship, a heart to worship, a heart that really wants to get intimate with the Lord. And thank you, Pastor Tom, for just not allowing time to be such a restraint and just allowing the Holy Spirit to have his time. So yes, um, my name is Carla Schwartz, and I live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I have two amazing teenagers, Chad, Kristen, you guys want to stand up or wave a hand or something? (laughs) Put them on the spot and embarrass them a little bit, right? And Pastor Tom and I, yes, we have known each other for, like, like Pastor said, a lifetime the way it seems. But so uh, Pastor Tom and Christy and I and my, my late husband, John, we all went to Trinity Bible College together. So we've known each other for quite some time. And what I remember about uh, Christy is just that big smile and very outgoing. And what I remember about Tom is the library. He's the most studious guy. And every time I went into the library, there was Tom. Just pouring over the books. So know that you have a, a pastor who really, really takes the word of God seriously and he studies very hard. So, um, And my daughter was excited to come today because my daughter and Keziah have been friends for I, a couple years, I suppose, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it's been fun. They, I'm, every now and then I'll be like, Kristen, who are you messaging? Keziah, who are you Snapchatting? Keziah. And they're, you know, going back and forth. So it's fun for Kristen to see her. Um, so it's just nice to, to see people. And also an, uh, another point of interest here is Pastor uh, Steve Cuno, whom used to pastor here, his wife, Lynette. Lynette and I are cousins. So Lynette's mother and my mother are sisters. So um, I know that they pastored here for some time too. So little little connection there. Um, but, you know, as we're talking about uh, people, names come up, we have memories, uh, don't we? We all have memories of things. Some are good and some are bad. If I were to say grandma, maybe you'd think of, I don't know, I know what I think of. My grandma always made homemade cinnamon rolls all the time, and she made, being a good Norwegian lady, she made a lot of lepsa. So I remember that about my grandma. But if I were to say the word sister, teacher, pastor, boss, your mind starts filling with, with memories of those names and with thoughts of those names. And when I think of my late husband, John, He's been gone for three years now. I remember so many things. We, of course, met and married at Trinity Bible College in Ellendale, North Dakota. My husband was a city boy from Chicago, born on the south side, and I was a small-town girl from really all over South Dakota. But I instantly fell in love with John because he was so different. He was just so, so gregarious, and he had a great smile, and he had these huge hands and this booming laugh and a love for the Lord and a love for people. Everywhere we went, John shared Jesus Christ with someone. And uh, John and I, we loved to eat. He was a big Italian guy. <laughs> so he loved to eat a lot. And we, he found the most fun dives for us to go to for dates. And we worshiped together. And we watched the Bears, you know, play football. And we played Uno together with our kids. And 
we just did a lot of things together. One of John's favorite things to do was to fish, and he was a pretty good fisherman. Even my dad said that. He's like, how can a city boy be a good fisherman? But I don't know, he kind of got the knack of it pretty quickly. But um, when John and I were pastoring in um, Millbank, South Dakota, he, uh, he was like, you know what? I've noticed that a lot of people here have boats, Carla. And when you have a boat, you can do a lot more fishing. So how about if we get a boat? And I'm like, Yes, on the salary we have, that's a, a great idea, but uh, being a good Jewish boy, he was Jewish and Italian, he, um, one day we were driving, just, just driving, you know, in a gravel road, and he's like, hey, I think I see a boat over there, there's something over there in the weeds. So we stop, and we pull over, and he starts digging, and of course, he found a boat in the weeds over there, and uh, it ended up being just this old inboard, and he pulled it out, and he fixed it up, and so we spent that summer just tubing and fishing and just going for rides in the boat. And I soon realized that even though my husband was a good fisherman, he was a horrible boatman. Horrible. Every time we got out on the water, John would forget something. He would forget to do something. I'll never forget one day, um, I can't remember if it was Blue Dog Lake or, or I think it was Blue Dog, out, out the Wabay area. And so we were out on the boat, and John was a speeder. You know, being from Chicago, everybody goes 10 miles over the speed limit at all times. And so he just sped out into the middle of the lake, and we're out there, and I'm like, Johnny, <laughs> there's water coming in the boat. And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, and the water just keeps coming and keeps coming. And so the kids and I, you know, start jumping up and down. Someone save us. And there was a pontoon nearby, and he came, and he hooked onto us, and, you know, and he pulled us. Uh, to the dock, you know, pulled us to shore, and it was, the, the problem was this, John just forgot to put the plug in the boat, <laughs> but it was, you know, so I was thinking something big, right, but it was just a plug, and uh, I can't tell you how many times that summer we would get out, and we'd have to be rescued, one time it was just this little guy who looked like a little dinghy, really, he was just out fishing, and he uh, helped bring us to shore, always something, but it was funny then, as we're all laughing, but as a wife, you know it can be a little maddening, too. Um, but little did I know that that continual sinking of the boat would actually become a symbol of our lives with, with John. He had so many great ideas, and, and we tried so many new things. I went to so many new places, but sadly, John always forgot something. He seemed to always miss that little something and would inevitably get into trouble and start taking on water and need to be bailed out. And I cannot tell you how many people that God used throughout the years to bring John safely back to shore. Today what I'd like to do is, is share our journey with you, share our boat ride with you, if you will. I'm going to grab a quick drink of water here. And... Our journey begins in the book of Job. So we're going to start with Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the land of Oz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. So we see here that Job is a really good man, and Job has a good life. The Bible tells us that he was even the greatest man at that time. Life was good, and we can all relate to that, can't we? Things are going along pretty good. You feel good, you have a nice home, you have a good job, a beautiful wife, your family, you drive a Honda Civic. <laughs> That's what I have. You know, great church, all those things. And I always thought my life was pretty good. Um, I was a, a Trinity Bible College graduate, which was always a dream of mine after I got saved. And then I was married, good kids. Um, we homeschooled. Financially, we were okay. We were in the ministry, which was always my heart. So life was pretty good. And you know what? Job thought so too. And let's continue reading in Job 1, 13 through 17. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were, donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came. 
and said, the fire of God fell from the sky, burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties. They swept down on your camels, carried them off. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Wow. Unexpected tragedy strikes Job. His perfect life is now a little bit messed up, isn't it? All of a sudden, he's lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants. In other words, in today's terms, Job has lost his livelihood. His money is gone. He's broke. Let's keep going. Job 1, 18 and 19. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly... A mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. As if Job hasn't already lost enough, now he loses even more. He loses the things that are the most precious to him. He loses his sons and his daughters, his children. He loses his babies. His family is gone. Now, I know this is very drastic, and we don't generally all lose these things all at the same time, but as I look out and I see your faces today, I know that you've all suffered some kind of loss. We're all, like the one gentleman said today in Sunday school, we're all broken. There's some kind of brokenness in us, some type of loss. Maybe we've lost, I remember when the real estate collapse took place and a lot of people lost their um, my husband's uncle uh, was one of the CFOs for uh, GE, and GE went through some things, and um, so he ended up losing everything. Everything that man had invested for like 45 years was, was involved in GE. The stock plummeted. He lost his 401k. He lost everything, his house, everything. Some of us have lost jobs. Maybe we've lost our health. I am starting to have some health issues right now, and, and it's amazing when, when you've had good health and you start having some issues, it's like, oh, I don't feel so good. And maybe some of you have lost friends or families through, family members through death, drugs, divorce, mental illness, physical illness. We've all suffered loss of some kind. Now, how does Job respond to his loss? How does he respond to this, the most tragic of news? Did he get angry? Did he yell? Did he throw something? I don't know. Sometimes I yell. Sometimes I throw things. You can ask my kids. Let's continue to read Job 1, 20 through 21. At this, Job got up, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Throughout the years, as I've read the book of Job, I always thought that response seemed very unrealistic, if you will. Who would respond like that when they've lost absolutely everything? But then tragedy struck my family. I'll never forget where I was, what I was doing the night I got the phone call. I think it must be like JFK. My mom, as well as several older people, have told me, the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated, they remember where they were, what they were doing, they remember the sights, they remember the smells. Or maybe like 9-11 for some of the younger ones. You remember where you were and what you were doing the day the Twin Towers were hit. I remember John was at work and I was at home with the kids and Chad was watching Elmo's World. And Kristen, I just remember her bald head. I remember her drinking her milk and I just remember her bald head. And then all of a sudden, the news flashed across the screen that the towers had been struck. Such tragic news will forever be cemented in our minds. I was at my mom's house, and um, we were sitting at the kitchen table. And we were just sipping some hot tea, and my cell phone rang, and, and it was a friend of mine. And so I stepped out into the garage, and I'll never forget the smells in that garage, the smell of the oil and the smell of the dust. So I'm on the phone, and, and my friend says, Carla, Carla, Johnny's dead. 
He killed himself. I didn't say anything at that time. I, I didn't even cry. I just, I just found myself like Job. Just getting on my knees and worshiping the Lord. Because I had to be with my Savior and I had to be with my best friend. I had to be with my comforter, my Lord, my strength. And isn't that how we all are? When you get that tragic news, when you hear those words, cancer, layoffs, he died. We were going to move. <laughs> if you hear the word Obamacare, <laughs> just, God, <laughs> just on our knees, worshiping and praising the Lord. <laughs> I love the next part of Job's journey here because his comforters come. And I had so many comforters. And I loved when they came. Let's take a look at Job 2, 11 through 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite heard about all the trouble that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with Job and to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud, and they, they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Job's friends, they saw his anguish, and they felt his pain. Our friends feel our pain. And they said nothing at that time, which, trust me, that was the best thing they could have done. Job needed the closest of his friends. He'd already spent time with his Lord and his Savior. And now he needed to receive from people, from his friends, from people who loved him and cared about him. And maybe these friends, in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe these friends are close friends. Maybe their children played together. Maybe they celebrated birthday parties and had dinners together. We can understand that. We want our friends close to us when we're having a bad time, don't we? I remember I was at Kohl's and I was shopping for funeral clothes. And I, I looked up and in the distance I, I recognized there was a friend of mine from high school. And she looked at me and I looked at her and she immediately started weeping out loud. And so did I. And then we came together and we just embraced and we just held each other and just loudly wailed into coals for a very long time. And she didn't say anything. She just held me, and we just cried together. And I'm sure the sales clerks and the shoppers were probably wondering, what is wrong with those girls? <laughs> but friendship. And when the autopilot is on and you're doing the things that have to be done initially, you're just, you're just taking care of funeral pep preparations and you got to shop and you got to write thank yous and you got to do the death certificates you got to do all these things and as soon as those things are done though the real real grieving and mourning set in and we see this in the book of job and job enters a deep deep anguish a state of almost indescribable sadness what I found so interesting about the book of Job is, is as I've picked it apart over the course of these last three years, I wasn't really, you know, what we hear about is Job's perseverance. That's what we hear about, right? But I was never drawn to that, to that book until I lost my husband. And what I found so interesting about the book of Job is the entire grieving process, because my kids and I have been through several grief classes and grief counseling, the entire grief process is all mapped out, all the stages of grief. They're all mapped out in the book of Job. And as, I read, as I've read through it so many times, I'm like, thank you, Lord, because you care about every detail of our lives. Everything we need is right here. Let's read Job 3, 1 through 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. The night it was said, a boy is born. Job hurts so bad that he just wishes he was dead at this time. He wishes he would have never been born so he wouldn't have to suffer this kind of pain and anguish. He just wants relief 
from the pain of his broken heart. And maybe you know that kind of sorrow, that kind of anguish that just, it is relentless. It just swallows you up and it just engulfs your being and it just takes your breath away and you're, you just feel like you can't even breathe. And I had so many days where I thought, you know, the pain from this, I'm just going to die. I will die of a broken heart. I can't tell you how many times I prayed and I said, God, I don't want to do this. God, you have got to take this from me. If you could die from a broken heart, I think I may have. I think my kids may have. They say that Johnny Cash, the most famous, one of the most famous country singers, the man in black, <laughs> they say that he died of a broken heart. You know, Johnny's story, Johnny and June, their, their story, their love story spans, I think, 30 to 40 years. And at the time of June's passing, she died of cancer. And four months later, four short months later, Johnny was dead. And the doctors say, I, I was reading about this in uh, several, you know, biographies and things like that, but... Um, they say that Johnny died of a broken heart. Within four months, he was gone. Heartache and heartbreak, they're very real. They're very real. During intense times of sadness and sorrow, especially in the beginning, but even, even now, I was so drawn to Jesus' words in Luke twenty-two forty-two when he cries out in anguish, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And we see in verse 44 that it gets even more intense for Jesus. And the word tells us that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is praying in the garden at this time and he knows the pain and the torture. He knows the suffering. He knows the separation from God that is about to take place and he doesn't want to go through it. And he says, God, God, take this from me. God didn't take it from him, but God said, I'll be with you. I will be with you while you go through this. God did not take Job's cup of suffering from him, but God was with him. God did not take my cup of suffering from me, but God said, Carla, I'm with you. In times when you can't even hold the cup, Carla, I'll help you hold it. In times when you're too weak and you're too tired to even do that, just put your hands down, because you know what? I'll hold the cup for you, Carla, while you drink of this. I will never leave you, and I will never, ever forsake you. As we go further along in Job's journey, we see that he comes to a point where he wants to know why. And I think that's kind of the human condition. Why was everything taken from me? Why am I suffering like this? If I'm going to go through this, God, I need to know why. We all want to know why. <laughs> why did this happen? Why didn't this happen? Why did she get that? Why did I end up with this? You know, why, why, why? Job's comforters at this time are also trying to help him figure out why God would do this to Job. So now they choose to open their mouths and they speak in that. <laughs> I always feel like they should have kept quiet. It's like that. That cell phone thing you guys had up there, you know, silence is golden. <laughs> silence would have been very golden for them at this time. Job's friends conclude that either Job himself or his children must have sinned against God, and that's the reason that all of this calamity has come upon Job. I'd like to read what they said to Job. Let's take a look at Job 8.4. When your children sinned against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Job's friends are not alone in analyzing why this happened to Job. We all have our friends, family members, critics, <laughs> who have an answer as to why we're going through what we're going through, right? Um, I know that I had all kinds of people telling me. Now, keep in mind, my husband was a pastor. And uh, all kinds of people telling me this. Carla, Christians don't commit suicide. Christians do not do that. Maybe John wasn't a Christian. Maybe he was demon-possessed. Maybe he was demon-oppressed. Maybe he didn't pray enough. Maybe he didn't fast enough. Carla, what sins was he committing? What sins were you committing? Carla, maybe it's your fault. Maybe you didn't pray enough. You know what? Job insisted to his friends 
but he was not at fault. And he insisted that his children did nothing wrong. And you know what? Job was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. Why does God allow tragedy? Why did God allow Job to go through so much? Why did my kids have to lose their dad at such a young age? In such a tragic death. Why did I have to lose my husband and now I'm trying to be a single mom all on my own? Why is God allowing each and every one of you to go through what you're going through right now? Job, as we look further here, finally decided that the only reasonable explanation for his tragedy was simply God. Let's take a look at Job 19, 7 through 11. Though I cry I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. God has blocked my way so I cannot pass. God has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. Job can only conclude that God is his enemy because he can't figure out why. And don't we all do this? If we can't figure it out, <laughs> if we can't find a reason who gets the blame, God, we all do it. We blame God for our suffering, for our loss. We blame God when we didn't get that job, or we blame God when we got married to this person and it's not working out. We blame God. Since the beginning of time, though, mankind has blamed God. All you have to do is look in Genesis, in the very beginning, and we see Adam and Eve. And Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve, but Adam ultimately blamed God and said, Hey, it was that woman you gave me. You know, no longer the helpmate. I love you, honey. You can have one of my ribs. She becomes that woman. And I understand that. I blame John. I remember lying in the fetal position on the living room floor so many times and looking up to heaven and just yelling at John because I know John was a believer and I know he's in heaven. I know he loved the Lord. And I would say things like, I know you can hear me. You see what's happening down here? This is all your fault. It was so easy. Your children are suffering. I'm raising them on my own. I don't know what to do. Don't you care? John, it was so easy. Maybe you should have fasted more. Maybe you should have prayed more. Maybe you should have got more counseling. Maybe you should have taken that pill. It really wasn't that hard, John. Weren't we enough for you to want to get well? And then I blamed God. And I said, God, you are a God of miracles. You parted the Red Sea. Couldn't you have just touched this man and made him well? You raised Lazarus from the dead. Couldn't you have just done something to heal John and make this okay? And maybe you've blamed God or a friend or a family member. Maybe you've blamed your pastor or your boss or a coworker. We can't neatly package something. When we think things are out of control, we have a tendency to blame because it makes us feel better. And now God speaks. I love this. Job is a long book here. So I love the fact that Job and his friends for almost 40 chapters are trying feverishly to figure this whole thing out. And God is such a God of patience. He hasn't said one word. Now how long this whole thing takes place in regard to days, months, weeks, years, I don't know. But we see now that it's God's turn. So let's turn over to Job 38, 1 through 3. I'm still very old school. I don't have the technology your pastor has. <laughs> then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you will answer me. And I get the feeling that God's a little hot here with Job. <laughs> so, Job, you think you know? You think you've got the answers? You've said plenty. 
Now let me tell you something. So we see this discourse taking place. Let's look at Job 38, 4 through 7. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. I love a little sarcasm. <laughs> so I just, I just love God here. I just, I'm thinking sarcasm there. Surely you know, Job. So God goes on here in great detail telling Job how he spoke the universe into existence, how he hung the stars, how he created the Leviathan. God goes on and on with all the things that he has done. And finally, God says to Job, Job 40, 1 and 2, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who, let him who accuses God answer him. God wants an answer. Let's keep going. Job humbly, very humbly, I'm sure, replies in Job 40, 3 and 4. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Job realizes that God is God and he is not. But God is good and God is faithful and God is in control. One of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, I love studying him at Trinity. He's got a great book called Knowing God. If you haven't read it, pick up a copy. Um, he's got this great quote in there, and I have this quote, underlined, highlighted, starred, everything. And J.I. Packer says this, There is a God, and you are not him. But sometimes we think we could maybe do a better job, don't we? Let's continue reading in Job 42. One through three. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures your, your counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me. Think about that. Things too wonderful for me to understand. Job couldn't figure out why. He's not supposed to figure out why. I don't know why. You don't know why. But you know what? It's okay not to know why. You know when our kids go through that stage when they're three years old, why, 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 why? <laughs> we give them the best answers that we can, but sometimes we just have to say, because I said so. Because I'm your father. Because I'm your mother. Why? We need to be content with the fact that we may never know. And at these times, these are the times that test our faith. These are the times when we must simply trust the creator of the universe with our lives. Trust him with our joys and with our sorrows. Trust him with our gains and also with our losses. Trust him with our children. Trust him with our spouses, our job, our finances, our health, our past, our present, and our future. In the end, Job apologizes to God. Let's take a look at Job 42, verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I didn't sit in dust and ashes. Thank the Lord. <laughs> we don't still do that around here, but I did apologize to God because I, I did really say some very awful things to my Creator. I did. And God forgave me, and God forgave Job, and God even forgave Job's comforters, which I'm sure that was very hard to do because <laughs> they put Job through so much torture. Um, but God forgives us. Why? Because he loves us. And there's a joyful ending to Job's story. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very good ending. It's a very satisfying ending. Let's look at Job 42. We'll start in verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. 
The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima. The second, Keziah. Keziah. And the third, Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. What a good ending. God restored Job. From the depths of that anguish, from the depths of that hopelessness, that helplessness, that I can't even get off the floor because it hurts so bad, God restored him. God restored his wealth. God restored his family. I love that Job's daughters, you guys have been talking about women here over the course of the last few, uh, several weeks here. I love the fact that Job mentions his daughters, that Job gives his daughters an inheritance because I'm sure as you've been learning that this was unheard of during this time in history. Women did not hold property back then. Women just simply were property during this time. So for Job to, it's important because it's mentioned here. And for Job to put his daughters in the inheritance is huge. And I can't help but think that maybe after losing so much, Job's perspective on life changed a little bit. I am not. People who know me now, people who knew me before, people who know me now, they're like, you have done a 360. You are not even close to the same person you used to be. I will never forget sitting on the couch with my daughter one day. I think she had her long legs you know, I'm, you know, on my lap, and I think I was rubbing her feet, and she said, Mom, I like you better. I like you so much better now, Mom. And, of course, I started crying. And it just really hurt my heart, and I said, Why, sissy? She said, Because you take time for me, and you sit on the couch with me, and you talk to me. And you don't just talk at me, Mom. You, like, look me in the eyes, and you talk to me. I've slowed down so much. I was guilty of being that type A personality. That person who your to-do list was more important than your family. Your to-do list more important than your relationships. My to-do list was more important than my kids. Tragedy and loss will change us if we let it. I love that Job's story does not end with death. Job's story ends with life, and it's a good life. Our story doesn't end with death. Chad's story does not end with the fact that his father committed suicide. Kristen's story does not end with the fact that she will be raised by a single mom, that her dad died, that her dad is gone. Chad and Kristen's stories end with life. My story ends with life. Your story ends with life. I'd like to conclude today with the boat, and if we would have our musician come and play, thank you. I can't tell you how many times I thought we'd sink when we were out on that boat with John, but we didn't. In the last days and moments of, of John's life, it's as if he sped out in the middle of that lake for one more ride. He started filling on with water, and maybe he forgot the plug, or maybe he just simply couldn't find the plug that day. And that dysfunction, that pain, the abuse, the mental illness, the storms of John's life took him from us. But they did not take us. God made sure that Chad and Kristen and I were safely on shore that day. I want to encourage you today. I want to, really want to encourage you today. God is a good God. He's a faithful God. And even though you feel like you're up here in the water, you're just treading, you're just treading water, I want you to know that God's with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. 
He will never abandon the ship. He's always there with you. Maybe some tragedy has struck your family. Maybe you've lost a family member recently. Maybe you've had a change in jobs or, or you're struggling with your health or, or there's so many things. There's so many things that, that break us and that hurt us. I want you to know that God will restore because God is a good God. And today, I'd like to pray with you. And I know you guys already had an amazing time of prayer but I would like to open these altars to you and if you want to talk to me I would love to talk with you if if you want to pray together I would be honored so I'm just going to be down here and just come just come as the spirit leads know that this is a safe place this is a safe place for you to be